So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. That is, you flip your Bible to the second half of the book, the New Testament. You go about three books in, the third biography of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. We will be in chapter 11 this morning, starting in verse 1. This is actually, we're going to take a little break from the Gospel of Luke for the summer. So this is our last uh, time in the Gospel for a while. But as we dig in, I want to ask this question. How vital is prayer to your life? I'm not asking how often you pray or what your typical rhythms of prayer are. I want you to consider how vital prayer is to your life. Is it a essential? Is it part and parcel with how you navigate existence on this planet? Think about this. Here's a little mental test. What would happen if you skipped prayer for one day? What impact would it have? Now imagine every instance that you would normally pray in a given week, and imagine that you chose to do something else in that time. Take a phone call listen to music, scroll through social media, uh, get distracted by a project, how would that alter your experience, your demeanor, your effectiveness? Would it? Are some of you currently engaged in this experiment right now? Can you identify the ripple effects of prayerlessness in your life? As men and women, as they responded to Jesus' call to follow him, as they enrolled as his apprentices, they were profoundly impressed by Jesus' prayer life. In the Gospels, we see Jesus praying constantly. He's praying under his breath at these momentous events in his life, like his baptism. We see him staying up all night in prayer and discernment before major decisions like the uh, selecting of the 12 apostles. We see him often engaged in this rhythm of withdrawing to desolate places to pray, to be alone with God, his Father. And the fact that Jesus prays is interesting. It makes clear that he is dependent on God's help and direction. It's really a a tangible indicator for us that Jesus' power comes from God. It's not skill or magic or something that he independently conjures up on his own, independent from his Father. He is dependent on God's power. And yes, the inner workings of the Trinity are a little bit of a mystery to us, But I appreciate that this is the case because my reserves of skill or magic or or strength are quite limited. And if Jesus' power was something he mustered up from the depths of his divine being, I could not follow his example. But I can pray. And we read here in the Gospel of Luke... Starting in verse 1, chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. They're asking for a distinctive prayer that will mark them as his 
students, as his people, as those who walk in his way. They ask him for words that will publicly identify them as emissaries of the Messiah, Jesus. Now, we might expect that Jesus would push back on that request. Hey, guys, ladies, it's not about the words you say. It's about the attitude, the sincerity, the spirit in which you say them. But those are our biases, and Jesus doesn't play to them. He gives his disciples actual words to speak. He trains them in a pattern of prayer that will shape them and form them and mark them as people of his way. What we call the Lord's Prayer becomes a prototype for us of all of our dialogues with God. There's an old Latin phrase that is lex credendi est lex orandi. And it means literally the rule of belief is the rule, the pattern of prayer. In other words, we'll see what you believe as we see the way you pray and worship. Jesus is telling us that there are times where our actions will actually shape our attitudes. Where the way we pray will shape what we believe. It's not only that faith leads us to worship, but sometimes worship leads us to faith. So Jesus gives us words. He teaches us an actual prayer, an actual pattern of interacting with God. And here's what we read in verse 2. And He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. It's shorter than you might expect. It's stripped down to its bare essentials. And it's not that we can't say other words to God, but these are, these are the bones that we put flesh on. It's a distinctive pattern that characterizes how we talk with God. First, He, he teaches us to address God as Father. There's simplicity there. There's intimacy there. Which is really unusual in the ancient world. It was a common assumption in Jesus' day that the gods were reluctant to listen and even more reluctant to respond to the prayers of mortals. So in order to secure an audience with them, you had to flatter them. You had to recount their deeds. You had to follow the proper protocol, you had to address them correctly or they would be deaf to your prayers. And often, gods had different names in different regions or different titles for their different functions or or domains of authority. And while this is typically a pagan practice, we see echoes of this kind of tendency of thinking even in the Old Testament. The God of Israel, Yahweh, was known by many names. He was El Shaddai, God Almighty, All-Sufficient. He was El Elyon, God Most High, El Olam, Everlasting God. He was Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of Hosts, Jehovah Jireh, 
the Lord who provides, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, and on and on. You can have an entire poster covered with the names of God in Scripture. Yet Jesus instructs us to call God Father. To address His Father as our Father. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus opens for us access to His Father and places us in relationship with God. God becomes our Father and we become His children because of Jesus' intervention and introduction and intercession. And Father, it's this term of relationship and respect. It's the name used within a family circle. But it also implies submission, right? A child is under the leadership and authority of their father, and children are called to obey their parents' will. So calling God Father also identifies us as faithful children. So we pray, Father, hallowed be Your name. Let Your name be sanctified. May it be lifted up as special, holy, pure, utterly unique. May Your reputation shine and Your character be recognized across the cosmos. We pray these words every night with our kids, but I swear there is no other time that I use the word hallow in regular life. We pray it, but do we understand what it means, what an answer to this prayer would look like? Well, let's let Scripture help us interpret Scripture. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, he wrote this. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Name was is this almost representation of who God was. It's the, His whole being known publicly, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness, the specialness of My great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So who bolsters God's reputation in the world? Who hallows His name? Ezekiel makes it sound like God does. That God is in charge of His own PR. That it's through His intervention that God will make Himself known in the world. So in a sense, we're called to pray, Father, glorify Your name. Yet look at that last part. When through you, I will vindicate my holiness in their eyes. God will bolster His reputation. He will resurrect His tarnished image that was tarnished by His people misrepresenting Him. He will do it through you. He will hallow His name through His people. How will that be? 
Since it feels like sometimes all we do is cause damage to God's reputation out in the world. The prophet will go on to say, I will gather you. This is how I will hallow my name in you. I will gather you from all the countries and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone, that hard heart that lives inside your chest and I will give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. You shall be my God and I will be, you shall be my people and I will be your God. God will act to restore his reputation. He will send Jesus to make the world right and whole, new and beautiful once again. But God will also hallow his name by hallowing for himself a people who embody his life and heart and character in the world. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are both calling on God to act and we are surrendering and partnering with what God wants to do by his spirit in our lives to cause us to better reflect, better represent, better embody who God is to the world. So Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. That longs for the overthrow of evil's kingdom reign on the earth. For the rebuke of evil and sin and death in our culture. For for the establishment of justice in society. And for all the wrongs in our world to be set right. For all things to fall under the good and kind leadership of the Prince of Peace. God, hallow Your name and let Your kingdom come and then give us each day our daily bread. This is one of the harder parts of this prayer. And the emphasis is on the word daily. It is bread sufficient for the day. It should bring to mind the manna in the wilderness that Israel ate when they were there in the desert It should bring to mind for you the daily ration that a soldier receives on campaign. We're not praying for fancy fare. We're asking for what is needful to serve God's kingdom. What is required to sustain us in that struggle of God's name being hallowed and His kingdom coming. We petition for all that is necessary for us for life and for godliness. And I really do think Jesus is channeling Proverbs 38-9 through where Solomon writes, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is a dangerous prayer. Lord, don't give me abundance. Instead, give me a living wage, enough to survive and thrive. Notice he also calls us to pray for provision in one-day increments. Do you notice how a pattern of prayer like this will shape 
our beliefs and it'll shape our character, our faith, and our relationship with God. We don't ask God for the money up front or in yearly disbursements, but we say, sustain me, Lord, paycheck to paycheck, assignment to assignment, task to task, day by day. Each morning, by Your mercy, fill me with bread. Give me too much and I'll feel secure and I'll be tempted to deny that You're even providing. You leave me in want and people might see my poverty and have doubt about Your goodness to Your people. So give me each day my daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Few observations. Jesus makes a communal emphasis here. It's not forgive me my sins, it is forgive us our sins. Because sometimes our guilt is shared with our community. Don't be more individualistic than Jesus. Notice it's too that it's our sins for which we ask forgiveness, but it is debts that we forgive others. There's a theologian, Justo Gonzalez, and I love how he puts it. He says this, the implication is that our sins are like unpaid debts, perhaps even unpayable debts, and that while we pray God not to collect on us, we also commit not to collect on others. Our experience of grace ought to overflow in gratitude and in mercy. That we are not expecting to receive from God things that we're not prepared to bestow on others. It's been put this way as well. If one is not forgiving, one cannot receive forgiveness for a forgiving spirit is the outstretched hand by which we receive God's forgiveness. And then the prayer ends, and lead us not into temptation. There were rabbis that used to teach their disciples to pray, test me and try me, Lord, so that I might overcome and prove myself strong and faithful to you. Jesus trains us to pray the opposite. Keep me from testing, for I might not be able to hold up. It is a humble admission of our vulnerability, of our likelihood to succumb when faced with temptation. It's a confession. Lord, I have disordered desires that seek to lure and to entice me down roads that lead to destruction. And yes, your strength is enough, but I also know my weakness and you know my weakness. I don't ask for self-serving strength so that people can see my triumph. I ask for a way of escape so that I might endure and avoid being ensnared by sin. Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation.
And then Jesus will go on to illustrate and explain this prayer by providing us with a scenario. We read in verse 5, He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. They had one-room houses, so they were all together in the same room. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, because of his shamelessness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if your son asks for a fish, nutritious food, will you give him instead of a fish, a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will you give him something deadly, a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So how does this illustrate this prayer that He teaches us to pray? I think we need a little cultural context because most of us, our neighbor's house would have to be burning at midnight for us to knock on their door and say, hey, um, excuse me, sorry, uh, your house is on fire. Do you know, right? This is not part of our cultural context to, to bug our neighbors in the night. But these are folks that are living in small rural villages. And these are folks that have this deep heart for hospitality. And yes, it is unexpected for a friend to arrive unannounced at midnight. He's catching his, his host off guard, but it was important for someone who is traveling to your village to be welcomed with hospitality, and they really wanted to be able to present the guest of their village with a loaf of bread, their daily ration of food after their long journey. And they really wanted it to be, as a sign of respect, a, a full, unbroken loaf. Now this guy has a buddy that comes late at night and he looks in his cabinet and his leftover bread is all nibbled by his kids. It's all cut up. He doesn't have what he needs to present to his friend. So he goes to his buddy, his neighbor next door. He remembers, oh yeah, he has a full loaf. Let me bother him and ask. And he doesn't seem so apologetic for a couple reasons. One, he's not asking for himself. He's asking to honor a friend. So he knocks with boldness. Second, he's not asking just a neighbor. He's asking a neighbor who is a friend himself. And third, he's asking for the bare minimum. Not, hey, do you have any filet mignon and some, some shrimp in the fridge? He's asking for a basic meal to honor and sustain this guest. And he realizes this is, yes, it's my friend, but really 
My friend is a guest of our entire community, so I will knock with boldness. It's more like a better analogy would be uh, your wife has gone into labor and it's time to take her to the hospital and the car won't start. So you knock on your neighbor's door and say, sorry, my car won't start, but I got to get here to the hospital. It's, this is absolutely necessary. Will you loan me your car? And imagine if you did that And your neighbor's like, you know what? I think I may have left my car keys in with the baby sleeping. So, no. Figure it out on your own. You'll be okay. It's inconvenient, all that sort of thing. I I don't want to wake up the baby. And I don't know why I would have left the keys in there. But maybe I did. So, I just can't do it. Bye. That's the lameness of the excuse That is being given. But why does the grumpy friend finally respond? It's not because he keeps pounding on the door. It seems that the the neighbor asks only once. We hear it's because of his impudence, his shamelessness, that he decides, you know what, I better answer the door and give him what he needs. What does that mean? He's realizing that his excuse was lame. He's realizing that it will bring shame not only on him, he'll be the guy forever known. You wouldn't even loan your car to your neighbor when his wife was in labor and his car wouldn't start. That would go around. He would be embarrassed and forever marked. And he knows as well that it would bring embarrassment to the whole neighborhood So realizing that, he gets up and gives what he needs. How does that help us understand this prayer? I had an opportunity this week to pray with uh, one of the pastors in the city. Every third Thursday, all of the, the city pastors in Puyallup get together for what we call John 17 Pastor's Prayer. That prayer that Jesus says, I pray that you might be one. So we come together as one to pray for one another. And I had an opportunity to pray with Pastor Dave Rhodes over at Puyallup Nazarene, and he is stepping down after 50 years of faithful ministry. And he's one of those guys that he says things that I just find myself writing down in my notes app on my phone because I need to like chew on them and ponder because he's got all of this condensed, pithy wisdom. The other day he said something, the church is unequal parts mess, mystery, and miracle. And I'm still chewing on that one. But as he got to the end of this journey of 50 years of faithfulness, he said, you know what ministry has felt like? It has felt like this passage. Like God is bringing people to our door who are in desperate need of welcome and sustenance and care. And I have nothing to give them. But, how do we respond in those moments? I say, sorry, I'm really apologetic, but you'll have to look elsewhere. No. You don't start baking the bread either. Like, it's too late. You can't muster it up. 
What you do is you knock on the door of the one that you know has what is needed. And with boldness you ask. And he said, that has been my 50 years of ministry. People have come to me with broken marriages and I can't fix them. People have come to me with broken bodies and I can't do anything to sustain them. They've come with great needs. And Jesus has invited me not to turn them away, not to feel shame in myself, but instead to knock on the door and say, God, You've got a full loaf. And You have a reputation that You are eager to defend to show Yourself strong and sufficient and enough and loving and welcoming. So instead of saying, I can't do it, I am going to be bold enough to ask. Because I am asking and seeking and knocking not for my whims, but for your beloved people out in the world that need to experience your love and your care. I'm asking because you are friend and father and you've said you've loved us and you will move heaven and earth to save your people. So it is not inappropriate for me to ask. We are not asking that you give all of them Corvettes. We are asking that you give what is needful for life and for flourishing, for healing and for hope. And we ask because we know that you seek to hallow your name in us. And then he says, you know what the good gift that God gives is? His Holy Spirit. The very power of God at work in community. And Dave said, sometimes those resources were divine intervention from outside of us. Sometimes it was God marshalling the church of, yes, I can't do this, but look, this part of the body that the Spirit is working on, they're ready and eager and ready to help. And sometimes it is God doing a work in us that we could not see or even imagine because we are surrendering to the very life of God, transforming and changing and using us. So I've titled this message, Breadless, Prayerful, and, oh my gosh, brain. Breadless, prayerful, and beloved. Thank you, Greg. It's been a long weekend. Because we don't have it in ourselves, but we know the one who is the bread of life. And when we come in contact with our lack, we do not shut down in shame. We do not divert with apologies. We boldly approach the throne of grace because we know that we are beloved. So I've been reflecting on this. Why does Jesus act? Why does God work in this way? Why not just send people who can answer the needs right away? Why not leave me out of it and you just do it, God? Well, first, Jesus wants to train us in trust and dependence. Our strength is not enough. We need to realize that lesson. Second, He wants to thrill. He thrills to give us a front row seat to miracle. 
I think of the feeding of the 5,000 where the crowds don't know a miracle is happening, but the disciples are there and it keeps going and they get a front row seat to see how God moves heaven and earth to welcome and care and save people. And then Jesus wants to help us recognize where our true power lies. It is in Him and it is in the life of God, the Holy Spirit at work in us, hallowing His name in the world. Amen? Well, let's close this time by praying the prayer that Jesus taught us. Greg, do you mind doing that for us? Let us pray together. Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Amen. Amen.